Welcome to The Bone Beat, conversations on health policy issues affecting musculoskeletal care and supporting advocacy efforts to advance access and quality. Brought to you by the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons. Here's your host, Kristen Coltis. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation about an issue that might be familiar to those already engaged in healthcare advocacy, but has been getting a lot of national attention with the novel coronavirus and more recently, the Black Lives Matter movement. And that topic is disparities in healthcare. In fact, you may have seen the recent letter from J. Robert Gladden Orthopedic Society President, Dr. Eric Carson, who describes this latest chapter as yet another affront to the elusive promise of equality. He calls on members to work hand-in-hand with the AAOS leadership, and AOS has responded by committing to elevate the call to action and working with colleagues and specialty groups to be part of the solution that will narrow the disparity gap for patients. So that's why today we have Dr. Mary O'Connor as our guest, who is the current chair of the Movement is Life Caucus. For those who are not already familiar with this organization, Movement is Life is a multidisciplinary coalition seeking to eliminate racial, ethnic, and gender disparities in muscle and joint health by promoting physical mobility to improve quality of life among women, African Americans, and Hispanics. Dr. O'Connor is also a professor of orthopedics and rehabilitation at the Yale School of Medicine. Thank you for joining us, Dr. O'Connor. Thank you. Delighted to be with you, Kristen. My co-host, Shriasi Deb, who should be a familiar voice if you listen to our episode on the regulatory response to COVID-19, and Shriasi is actually a member of the Movement is Life Steering Committee through her role as a Senior Director of Health Policy for the AAOS. Welcome back, Shriasi. Thanks, Kristen. Now, before we dive into the ways in which COVID-19 has sort of illuminated this issue beyond just the healthcare industry, I want to give Dr. O'Connor the opportunity to tell our listeners about her efforts to reduce disparities prior to the pandemic. Specifically, what are some of the structural healthcare inequalities that Movement is Life raises awareness for and has been trying to improve? Kristen, thank you so much, and I really welcome this opportunity to reach uh, the audience because this is such an important topic. And what we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic is basically these disparities have been uh, accentuated and people are having a heightened level of awareness regarding the disparities that exist. Uh, But these disparities have been ongoing. And what we're seeing in the pandemic with the disproportionate deaths in communities of color was totally predictable. So none of what we're seeing happen in the pandemic is, is a surprise to anyone who's been, um, you know, aware and studying the issue of health disparities. So I think that's an important point. Uh, so fundamentally, what we need to do is improve the health of our nation. I mean, it's, it, it just comes down to that. We understand that the communities of color, because they have higher burdens of comorbid conditions like obesity, heart disease, diabetes, hypertension, sedentary lifestyles, those comorbid conditions 
are putting those individuals at higher risk of death uh, in the pandemic. And they are also at higher risk of death even not in a pandemic because of the burden of comorbid conditions. So, so really addressing these underlying health issues is essential as we really start to appreciate how each of us are connected to one another and how interdependent we all are, which is certainly something this pandemic, I think, should be bringing home to everybody. Right. And I know we're going to get into some of the specific ways in which COVID-19 has impacted these groups of people. But I want to go to Shriyasi uh, and just get her take on um, the issue of healthcare disparities more generally. Shriyasi, uh, this is an issue that the AOS has seen in our advocacy work as well, right? It's why we've advocated for certain value-based payment models to account for these comorbidities, just as one example. Yes, Kristen, that's right. We continue to advocate here at AAOS for inclusion of social determinants of health, um, along with clinical comorbidities for risk adjustment in payment models, um, such as uh, the comprehensive care for joint replacement, the CJR, and the BPCI advanced models. Um, in 2018, um, and I know Dr. O'Connor uh, will speak about that, but we uh, re- received a request from Movement is Life Caucus, uh, which is led by Dr. O'Connor, as you mentioned, to support the Equality in Medicare and Medicaid Treatment Act introduced uh, in Congress by Congressman John Lewis of Georgia. And this legislation calls on CMMI, the Innovation Center at CMS, to include social determinants of health in their payment models. Um, In fact, in the recent uh, proposal to extend the CJR model, CMS proposed using their higher hierarchical condition category coding, the HCC, that is used by Medicare Advantage plans as a risk adjustment measure, but it is probably more meaningful um, to include race, ethnicity, family support, some of the um, social measures, living conditions, Medicare, Medicaid, dual eligibility um, uh, as part of their risk adjustment algorithm. Um, AAOS also supports and watches for the improving Medicare post-acute care transformation Act or IMPACT for short, uh, that charges ASPE, the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation at HHS, on providing annual reports to Congress on inclusion of social risk factors in value-based payment models. Um, it is very difficult for payers to account for such risks, and we are mostly not there as yet. So I know so, that... Uh, go ahead, Dr. O'Connor. Yes, Uh, Shriyasi just gave a a beautiful outline of two uh, important pieces of proposed um, legislation. Uh, I want to just highlight how this matters uh, when we go down to a patient level. So, Kristen, it's really important for us to understand conceptually how all of this impacts an individual. And I want to just briefly go through with with, uh, you and the audience um, what we call our vicious cycle. And if we go to the medical part of the vicious cycle, this is an equal opportunity employer. Anyone can get trapped in the medical vicious cycle, whether you're an affluent white male CEO or a low-income woman of color. And that medical vicious cycle starts with joint pain. 
you develop pain in your knee, you become less active because your knee hurts, but you still eat the same. So you gain weight that puts more pressure on your knee, which increases your knee pain. And we are as orthopedic surgeons, extremely familiar with this cycle, where we see the patient who's obese and has knee arthritis. But What also happens with that immobility and obesity is the development of diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and often depression. And so now it's not just an individual sitting in front of us in the office who's got knee arthritis and who's obese, but a patient who's got knee arthritis who's sick. And we know that this can impact anyone. Anyone can get trapped in this vicious cycle, but it's more likely that the individual who gets trapped is the one who has social determinants of health adversely impacting them. So if that individual lives in a low-income neighborhood where there's not a grocery store that sells affordable fresh fruit and vegetables, then they don't eat as well. And, you know, one of, one of the things that's kind of that our listeners may not recognize is that the cost of fresh fruit and vegetables will differ even within the, f- the same grocery chain based on where the store is located. So what you pay in your you know, well-to-do neighborhood uh, grocery store is not what the price would be in a low-income neighborhood. We know that if they live in a neighborhood that's unsafe, they can't go out and walk. So these social determinants of health are critically important. A- around the social determinants are public and private policy. Right? Do we have policies that support access for patients? Do we have private groups saying, okay, now you're uh, on Medicaid and we don't accept Medicaid insurance, so we can't see you anymore? And then even surrounding all that, now we have a pandemic that's impacting everything. So, so we, we see, when we see um, health disparities in this complex framework, we can start to identify the uh, opportunities to make positive change. Dr. O'Connor, I want to go back to a phrase that you used when we began this conversation. And you said that what's happened through COVID-19 and the impact it's had on the on healthcare disparities in general was totally predictable. In fact, in a recent clinical orthopedics and related research article, you explained that these existing structural healthcare inequalities became particularly devastating for disadvantaged communities. So what did you mean when you said pandemics don't impact everyone equally? And can you provide a few examples? So Kristen, that's an excellent uh, question. And uh, thank you for referencing my column in Clinical Orthopedics and Related Research, Equity 360, Gender, Race, and Ethnicity. I'm really honored uh, to, to provide this quarterly column to that great publication. So I'm going to go on a a really basic level that I think everyone can understand. We know that disparities impact people across this great country, whether you live in a city or you live in the country. Some of us are not as aware of the disparities in rural America, but they are very real. We see record numbers of closures of hospitals in rural America. We have entire counties that don't have an ICU bed. So let's say that you live in rural America, you get COVID, and all of a sudden your respiratory uh, status declines. 
and you are having trouble breathing. Well, what if the closest hospital that you used to go to is now closed? What if you have to drive an hour to get to a hospital? We know that the literature shows that for people with cardiac conditions, that their outcomes are negatively impacted when they have to drive more than 30 minutes or so to get to a medical facility. So access to health care also includes access to health facilities. So where you live can impact your outcome in this pandemic. So the pandemic does not affect everyone equally, not only because of their comorbid conditions, but because of their access to health care and access to medical facilities. Another, another aspect uh, of how this pandemic is not impacting everyone equally is the digital divide. We have seen uh, the explosion of telemedicine. And, we've, and at, at my institution, we've converted a lot of our visits in the, in the shutdown to telemedicine, as, as many others have as well. But what we have to appreciate is that not everyone has access to the internet. As, as crazy as that may sound, it's true. There are areas in the country where internet access is not so good, where you could not actually have a televisit. And those areas and those individuals are typically lower income individuals. So we have the digital divide potentially exacerbating health disparities as we transition more healthcare to a virtual platform. So we also have to be aware of that and look towards policy uh, to support improving internet access uh, across the country. I'm glad you mentioned telemedicine because in recent episodes of The Bone Beat, we have talked about how Congress and regulatory agencies such as CMS have moved to respond to the pandemic. And two of the changes that we highlight most are the additional flexibilities added to practice settings so that patients have a choice where they receive care, as well as the expansion of telemedicine like you just mentioned. So, Shriyasi, from your perspective, having uh, represented the AOS on a lot of these asks of our policymakers, uh, have any of these changes been targeted to these groups of people? And if not, what opportunities have we taken as an organization to advocate for them? Yes, I'm glad Dr. O'Connor and you raised the issue of telehealth. Uh, while on one end, uh, we are requesting that policymakers um, extend their current uh, pandemic-related flexibilities around uh, larger adoption of these uh, technologies. At the same time, we are mindful um, that some of the inner cities, some of the rural areas do not have broadband connection, and it's extremely difficult not only for patients as well as for some of those institutions to install uh, capacities um, to to have these um, visits uh, over telephone, audio, what have you. Um, So we are asking for additional funding um, support. Uh, Some of it has already come from the the Federal Communication Commissions through the CARES Act money, the FCC, uh, but I'm sure we need more. Um, Also, uh, we uh, are very happy here at AAOS that um, HHS has already dispersed uh, grants 
from the CARES Act and about 1,400 orthopedic practices across the country has already received more than $230 million. But these are mainly um, our surgeons who see Medicare patients, um, our pediatric surgeons who see CHIP patients, the Children's Health Insurance Program, and surgeons at safety net, net hospitals who see a lot of Medicaid patients have not seen any of this grant money as yet. So AOS strongly advocated uh, to HHS to come up with a formula for distribution of these grants to these groups. And um, just about last week, 10 days back, HHS has started the process of distributing these grants to um, our members who see Medicaid patients and CHIP patients. Both of you just highlighted some of the ways that uh, that our policymakers have responded to the pandemic and tried to help, you know, address these issues uh, for our disproportioned populations. Now, uh, I know that you feel strongly about narrowing this gap, requiring change from patients, providers, the community, and policymaking. Since this is an advocacy-focused podcast, can you uh, provide some additional ways that you think our legislators and rulemaking bodies can address these issues post-pandemic? Delighted to. I think there's a couple of areas that I would um, really be delighted to speak to. So one is um, moving wellness into communities, and uh, another is really focusing more on uh, shared decision-making activities with our patients. So when I talk about moving wellness into communities, it's basically a realization that we as doctors and, and as healthcare providers, we are very limited in what we can accomplish in the very short time that we have a patient sitting in front of us. And the, in the work that uh, Shriyasi and I have done with Movement is Life, we have created a program called Operation Change where we've gone into communities. We've done five sites so far. We've had over 200 women. These have been 18-week community-based programs uh, where we have uh, groups of Latina women or a group of African-American women or a group of rural uh, uh, Caucasian women coming together. And we give them... Uh, a weekly meeting where there's education, there's movement, there's motivational interviewing, and we have seen really incredible results. Walking speed improves uh, by about uh, by just under twenty percent, a three percent drop in body weight. We've seen almost a forty percent reduction in knee pain. Again, this is without like injections or medications or seeing an actual healthcare provider we have seen almost a 40% improvement in their feeling of helplessness and hopelessness because of the social connections and the emotional support these women are giving each other. And, and you know, Kristen, it really opened my eyes to recognizing that for people to make these fundamental behavioral changes, they need a community around them ideally of their peers to support them making these these challenging behavioral changes. So these are things that we as orthopedic surgeons cannot accomplish by ourselves with our patient. We can 
we can educate the patient and we can say to them, it's important you lose weight and you move more. And we need to do those things. Our patients need to hear that message from us. It's very important they do. But the patients need more than that. So I am looking for policy makers to step up and recognize the importance of community-based programs to combat the epidemics of the comorbid conditions that we see in our underprivileged communities. We absolutely have to have that. Uh, In terms of healthcare providers, I believe that there's more that we can do to engage patients through use of shared decision-making. Now, this is something that the physician doesn't have to do, a nurse in the office could do, uh, but, but we need to help patients see what their future looks like if they don't start embracing healthier lifestyles. And at Movement is Life, we've created a very innovative tool. Uh, you can get this tool for free uh, through a group called uh, QC Health. You can simply email me at mary.o'connor, my last name without the apostrophe, O-C-O-N-N-O-R at yale.edu, and I'll put you in touch. Uh, so we've created this incredible tool that takes into account the, the individual's uh, race, ethnicity, and gender, their weight, and some comorbidities, and basically shows them that if they do nothing, what their knee pain and function will look like in one, three, and six years. If they adopt healthier lifestyles, here's what their future looks like, and then a few, some other treatment pathways. And we have found in our pilot experience with applying that tool, we saw a statistically significant increase in the level of physical activity at one month with people who use the tool, people who experience the tool. So it's innovative approaches to engaging patients to help them become motivated uh, to embrace movement and better health that's so critical. So there's much work for to be done uh, by all of the stakeholders here, policymakers as well as healthcare providers, as well as patients. You know, I know that underinsured patients reimburse you poorly. And, and I appreciate that people have to keep their, their offices open. But, but, you know, if all, but, but my ask is that we all recognize our broader ethical responsibility and that, you know, we provide some care to those who are underinsured and that, and that we, and that we combat the tendency towards cherry picking and lemon dropping that can occur with bundled payments. I'm glad you mentioned the community around these uh, groups of people, Dr. O'Connor, because something that AOS has committed to doing is trying to diversify the orthopedic community. And some of the ways that we've tried to do that through our leadership, our board, and even future orthopedic surgeons is in working with them through advocacy. So Shriyasi, do you want to touch upon just some of those programs and groups that AOS has worked with? So uh, it is uh, one of our major focus areas in the AAOS strategic plan uh, to diversify not only the profession, uh, 
to reflect the patients that our members see, but also to um, strengthen our partnerships with other organizations, including Movement is Life, um, who are already working um, in the community uh, on these causes. Um, so one that I definitely want to mention is the AAOS collaboration with NN Dimensions, which is spearheaded by orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Bonnie Mason, who's also our colleague on the MIL steering committee and AAOS medical director, Dr. Will Schaefer. Um, so this collaboration have partnered to expand the number of orthopedic summer interns opportunities. These organizations are uniquely positioned to provide mentoring. Um, students come every summer to AOS offices on the hill and then they uh, go with our lobbyists um, on the hill. So that's a great opportunity for them to see close at hand how we are advocating uh, for orthopedic surgeons. I would also like to mention our partnerships with the Gladden Society and the Ruth Jackson Society. I know Dr. O'Connor continues to mentor um, young uh, female medical students uh, who choose orthopedic surgery. Um, so uh, wanted to definitely mention that. Thanks, Triasi, for noting those organizations. Clearly, helping to narrow the health equity gap requires creating this diversity among both patients and among our own physicians. So Dr. O'Connor, can you talk about the why that makes a difference in terms of addressing these racial, gender, geographic inequalities? Kristen, thanks. This is such an important point because we want our profession to reflect the people that we serve. Um, and we know that our profession is currently incredibly male and Caucasian dominated. And so we need the current efforts and those efforts to be accelerated because patients will respond, some patients in particular, if they feel that their doctor looks like them. They're going to trust that provider more. And we also need it to help us make better decisions in terms of our direction as an, as an academy and a profession uh, with, with how we advance uh, the art and science of orthopedics. As important as diversity in our profession is, and it really is important, I want to emphasize that, we also have to look at this in the bigger context of what creates health. And when we look at that, we see that only 10% of our health is actually related to medical care, medical access and medical care. And the larger factors are social circumstances and environmental exposure at 20%. 30% are, is our genetic uh, background, and 40% is our individual behavior. But, but one factor that I think is important is in that 10, while that 10% of healthcare is a relatively small amount and 40% is an individual behavior. If that patient feels more comfortable with their healthcare provider because of race, ethnic, gender concordance, will that impact their individual behavior in a more positive way? There is data that to suggest that it will. So again, big complex topic we have to make a uh, positive change in multiple areas. And one of those important areas is the diversity of our profession. 
that's an astonishing number that you say 40% uh, being related to individual behavior. And I know from reading that um, article that we mentioned, you actually list six things that individual orthopedic surgeons can do. And we covered two of those in talking about policymaking. Those two uh, were using our voices to support efforts to engage vulnerable individuals in electronic and digital measures. The second was to support healthcare, healthcare policies that promote healthier neighborhoods, improve access to care and health equity. Uh, but there were four other points, and they were mostly along the lines of getting our patients moving and making people healthier overall, going back to uh, the point you made about individuals making the biggest difference. So for our listeners who understand the importance of this issue, perhaps are already trying to narrow the gap through advocacy, but are looking to make a difference on a more personal level and maybe even change the trajectory of future pandemics, what will you leave our listeners with? What can they do as individual orthopedic surgeons? Thank you, Kristen. And that's, uh, I think, a really excellent way to close this uh, podcast. And I've uh, really enjoyed the interview. So thank you to both you and Shriasi. Uh, I think the most important thing for, for my colleagues to embrace is the importance of movement. And obviously, we're called Movement is Life because we believe movement is the key to life. So we need to keep moving and keep ourselves healthy. And we need to discuss the importance of physical activity with our patients. The second point is we can't ignore obesity. Sometimes I think we look at ourselves and we say, well, we're orthopedic surgeons. Obesity is the primary care doctor's uh, problem with the patient. That's their issue to address. And, and while we're not um, um, obesity specialists, I think it's still important for us to connect our patients with the link between obesity and joint pain and emphasize the importance of a healthy weight on on the health of their joints. I already mentioned um, how important it is that we recognize that people from lower income communities uh, who may be, you know, we'll use the term underinsured, uh, are, are disadvantaged. And I believe strongly that we all have an ethical responsibility to provide care to those individuals in our communities. And I understand that there are financial challenges uh, that can be associated with that. But if we each just did some, if we each did a, a portion of that care and provided that kind of access for some underinsured patients, it would make a big difference in our communities. And then finally, I think that many of us treat uh, patients with hip fractures and making sure that those patients who are particularly vulnerable in this um, COVID pandemic are getting appropriate treatment for their bone health so they don't return for their contralateral hip fracture or another fragility fracture, I think that's important. And finally, I'll just uh, add one more additional item, and that is, again, I think the importance of shared decision-making with our patients as a way to engage them, to get them to uh, overcome the emotional barriers to making lifestyle changes. And again, happy to share with anyone who's interested 
are fantastic and truly one-of-a-kind shared decision-making tool for patients with knee pain. Again, people can simply email me at mary.oconnor, O-C-O-N-N-O-R, at yale.edu. Well, thank you, Dr. O'Connor. This was an excellent conversation about a topic that is uh, very uh, important to the orthopedic community and really nationwide advocacy right now. As I said, AOS is committed to diversifying its leadership and the larger community, but we also rely on experts like you and organizations like Movement is Life to partner with us and talk about some of these solutions to racial and health care inequities. So thanks again for coming on the show. We greatly appreciate it. And thanks Shriasi too for coming back on and offering your expertise from the staff level. I know AOS is dedicated to doing its part to making a real difference in this important movement. So we thank all of um, our listeners for tuning into this episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Bone Beat from the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons. For more information on this topic and other AAOS efforts to shape the future of musculoskeletal care, please visit aaos.org advocacy.